Amen. Uh, we are back in our study of Mark this week. So if you're using a pew Bible, we'll be on page 820. We'll be looking at Mark 9, verses 14 through 50. <clears throat> Mark 9, 14 through 50. Be walking through this wonderful gospel according to Mark. This middle section of Mark, as I mentioned last week, sometimes called Act 2, it runs from about chapter 8, verse 22, through the end of chapter 10, and it is bracketed by healings of blind men on both sides, and the whole section just pulsates with a message of discipleship. Uh, So that will be our key theme this morning. We'll be talking about the path of discipleship as Jesus uh, is walking with the boys, as it were, and training them. Uh, So we'll consider this, and we'll read through Mark 14, or 9 rather, verse 14 through 50, the end of the chapter. So would you read with me? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. They asked, uh, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he had placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to him, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in Kevin Van Hooser's excellent book on discipleship called Hearers and Doers, he writes this, think of the pastor theologian as a general practitioner, a doctor who ministers health to the body of Christ in multiple ways, not least by recommending core exercises for spiritual fitness. You see, it was actually quite common in the older literature uh, of this image of pastors as being doctors. They were physicians of the soul, general practitioners who specialize in caring for humans with the word of God. Pastor theologians are called to be generalists who minister God's word both to individuals and to the corporate church. Van Hooser uses this great illustration to get at the point of of what it is a pastor's calling is as this pastor theologian who ministers the word in this way. He has to have what he calls a, a biblical eschatological vision. In other words, he's supposed to be able to see the church down the road and God's sanctifying work upon it. So he says this, Two stonemasons were hard at work, and when they were asked what they were doing, the first one said, I am cutting this stone as perfectly and as square as I can make it. But the other stonemason said, I'm building a cathedral. See, both answers are correct, but it takes imagination to see the cathedral when all you have is the stones which you're squaring up. Likewise, he says, two pastors were at work, and they were asked, what are you doing? The first pastor said, well, I'm planning programs, I'm preparing sermons, I'm managing conflict. And the other answered, I'm building a temple of God. See, it takes imagination shaped by the Bible to see one's congregation as the living temple, with each member as the living stone, as 1 Peter 2 says. Those stones which are joined together, chiseled, fitted, and polished in order to be united together on the cornerstone of Christ. See, this illustration helps to show why churches have to have pastors with a biblical vision which sees where the church is headed. It's one which sees the church toward this end which Jesus has prescribed for us, and that is the fulfilling of the Great Commission to make disciples. Uh, Clearly, what is going on in this passage here and what Jesus will build to as giving them this Great Commission before He ascends to be with His Father. Well, we announced this morning that over the next two Sundays, we'll be getting to hear from Jeff Wolstenhume preach as part of his candidating process. Uh, And at the council meeting this last week, as we were uh, having our final discussion and taking the vote to decide if we were going to present Jeff as the candidate, uh, Carlos asked an excellent question that I thought we all needed to think on for a moment. He said, well, since the associate pastors primarily are called to oversee discipleship ministries, is it normal that they'd preach two weeks in a row? And, and that is a great question, because the associate pastor is usually going to be younger. He's not going to be, that's not necessarily going to be his wheelhouse. He'll do some preaching, but it's something he needs to grow into. So why would that be a part of the candidating? That is an excellent question. The answer is this, is that pastors are those who specialize in ministering God's word and using it for discipleship. So the next two weeks, as you get to hear Jeff lead the pastoral prayer and to preach the word, what you're asking yourselves is, is he rightly dividing the word? To us as a congregation corporately, is he ministering God's word corporately as a general practitioner? 
Because if he can do it that way, then he can apply it to us in individual groups. As Van Hooser puts it, that work of chiseling and fitting and polishing stones so they fit on the cornerstone of Christ. Or as Ephesians 4 puts it, that pastors are a gift to the church by the risen Christ for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So that's what we are looking at in these next couple weeks. We're, we're asking, is this man one who is able to rightly divide and apply the word to God's people? And we'll consider a little bit more about this as we go on, because this whole passage is dealing with discipleship. And that is why we, as a church, have voted that we want another pastor, because we need more discipleship, more growth in this Great Commission work. Well, our text for this morning, here's the argument that I'm going to argue from this text, is that discipleship is a life of prayerful dependence upon Jesus while following his example of serving the lowly and fighting in temptation while living as, or as living sacrifices. One more time. Discipleship is a life of prayerful dependence on Jesus while following his example of serving the lowly and fighting temptation as living sacrifices. We'll, we'll see that as we walk through this passage with the three points you see, helping weak belief, serving the least, and accepting discipleship's call. Well, in our first point, um, we saw this scene that comes down right after they come off of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and you could argue that this first scene here fits with that transfiguration narrative. It's really uh, on the tail of that transfiguration. And you could argue, wrestling with these kind of pericopes that we walked through in the reading, that there's not a whole lot of connection at first. But I hope to show you that there's a theme that runs through all of these pericopes. Uh, and it's this theme of discipleship. And in particular, as Mark loves to do, this theme of the disciples clearly not doing well, not understanding. Well, Jesus and the three return, and it turns out that the nine has failed to cast out a demon. Now, Mark doesn't tell us explicitly, but it seems probable, given the flow of the story, that's what they were debating or arguing about. He comes down, and the disciples are there, and people are saying, well, Jesus is so great, why didn't you cast out the demon? Eh, we don't know for sure, but that seems a reasonable reason why they're debating. <clears throat> so Jesus uh, then says, what are you debating? Well, the man speaks up, the father, I, I brought my son to you. He is demon-possessed. The demons often tried to kill him. And Jesus responds with puzzling words, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? That's a kind of a weird way to response, respond to a father who just told you that his son is demon-possessed and on the verge of dying, is it not? Who is Jesus referring to, you unbelieving generation? Well, the commentators all disagree because the grammar is not perfectly clear. It, it certainly can't be only the father, uh, so it could be the leaders, but eh, many will say it's the disciples. But Mark never uses the word for generation only of the disciples. So I think it's best to take it as he's just speaking about the general unbelief in all of Israel. Uh, you unbelieving generation. I think this is the case because Numbers 14.11, God says to his people, how long, to Moses, about his people, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? Or consider Deuteronomy 32.5, where God speaks of Israel as being this warped and crooked generation. So it seems that Jesus is saying this unbelieving generation and the sin and brokenness that accompanies it is what he is lamenting and mourning over. And Mark's brilliant storytelling helps to capture all the pathos, all the emotion of this, uh, of this scene and of the, of the Father as he comes and says, can you help? Jesus' response, if I can help. If I can help, 
All things are possible to those who believe. And then the father cries out with the same cry that every true disciple should cry out with, I believe, but help my unbelief. This story is so important because it summarizes so much of what discipleship is. It is a cry, Lord, increase our faith. The Christians need to be so careful that we do not portray the Christian life of following Jesus in this triumphalistic way. As if trusting Jesus makes all your problems go away. As soon as you come to Christ, it'll just be rainbows and sunshines and hugs and muffins. No, that's nonsense. There will be many days, like with this father. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. So as this, with this man, this is the central cry of all Christian discipleship. Because Christian growth is a growth in seeing how unthinkably short we fall. And so our prayers are marked by more and more of asking for more grace for more strength for our faith. We see this modeled by the apostles in Acts chapter 4. It's the first time that they're arrested and they're, they're threatened there in Acts chapter 4, if you remember the scene. And they're released and they come out and they pray. And part of their prayer in Acts 4.9 is this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. We believe, but the threats are real. Help our unbelief. This is the apostles praying for faith. If they need help, then so do we. This is also why Paul's prayers, and I'd encourage you to study Paul's prayers. Don Carson's book on prayer walks through all of them very carefully. One of the best books on prayers you can get, D.A. Carson's uh, Praying with the Spirit. I'll, I'll think of the name. But it's a superb book, and he walks through all of, all of Paul's prayers. But this is what Paul does regularly, where he speaks of and thanks God for God's glory, and then he applies it and prays for God's people. So Ephesians 1, after he's already extolled God's greatness, he says in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, church, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, that's a prayer. In church, as we, as we get the new directory out, the digital one should be coming, I think, maybe this week, and the paper one shortly afterwards, I encourage you to pray these prayers for your fellow church members. Uh, it's a great way to get to know people, work through the directory, pray for a page or two at a time, hopefully pray for the whole thing each month. Uh, it'll help you to get to know people. When you see them, I prayed for you, and you can ask, and how can I more specifically pray for you? Well, what did you pray? I prayed that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know the hope to which you've been called. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. So, discipleship is a life of prayerful dependence upon Jesus. Praying for ourselves and our fellow church members, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Well, Jesus commands this demon, shrieks and comes out and leaves the boy. And it says, ah, he looks dead. He looks like a corpse. Well, it's interesting. Uh, did Jesus resurrect him? Ah, could be. The same exact words used in chapter 5 of Jesus resurrecting the little girl are used here. The same word used of Jesus saying that he will be resurrected from the dead. Uh, either way, the point is Jesus' authority is on display. And then the disciples come to him and they ask the question. They say, well, why is it that we couldn't cast it out? And, and again, we're not told. Jesus' response is a, is a little vague. He says, this kind can only come out through prayer. Well, the difficulty is, first, is kinds of demons? Ah, that's kind of challenging. 
Earlier in Mark, we learned about the legion of demons, so at least there seems to be some element of kinds going on there. But the point being made, the emphasis on the text here is really about the prayer, which seems to give us a hint that unlike this father, the disciples probably were starting to feel their Wheaties a little bit, you know? Remember, he'd sent them out. They'd cast out demons already. And they got to this one, and they're like, yeah, demon, come out of him. And it didn't work. No, I said, come out of him. And it didn't work. Maybe that's what they were arguing about. Maybe that's why Jesus comes down the mountain. And maybe that's part of why they're included in the, oh, unbelieving generation. No, it requires prayer. It requires realizing that our power only comes from the Son. So in this story, then, it seems the Father is a foil to the disciples. Whereas he says, I believe, but how I need help in my unbelief. They're like, oh yeah, we believe so much we don't need you anymore. That's a fascinating thing to think about when it comes to discipleship. How easy the Christian walk can start as a desperate clinging to the Savior, only to end up saying, yeah, it was great when Jesus let me in the door back there, but I'm doing pretty well right now. Why the life of discipleship is a patient walk of prayer. Well, that'll bring us to our second point, serving the least. Look again at verses 30 through 37. Well, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? They had to keep quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a child, a little child, whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So this is the second time Jesus announces his cross work, sometimes called his passion predictions, the the passion of his, his going to the cross. The second time, it'll happen three times in this middle section, this act two of Mark. And as Mark has done, he continues to show the cluelessness of these disciples. Uh, The first time Jesus predicted his passion, Peter turned around and spoke up for the group to rebuke them. And that didn't go so well because he received a rebuke back. Here they just decide to try a different tact. We're just going to be quiet. We're just going to pretend he didn't say that. We don't really know what's happening. Now, immediately, of course, in the flow of this little mini-narrative, you get them arguing about who's the greatest. So if you read this section and you start to cringe at the disciples' obtuseness, you're reading it correctly. If you read this section and just wonder, how in the world can you go from Jesus saying, I'm going to die, to, I wonder which of us is the greatest? Well, it just shows how easily we can be blinded by our, our traditions, our thoughts, as we talked about last week. Well, Jesus declaring himself that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, who's going to be delivered over. Instead of being a disciple, a learner, and asking questions, they debate passionately via whispers along the way, which one of us do you think is going to be the greatest? Well, Jesus gives them a lesson when they get to the house. He sits down, the official teaching position for rabbis, and he he calls the boys around, as it were, uh, and he says to them something that would have completely turned their world upside down. We read this section, it can be so easy for us to read by it because culturally, this just makes sense. So I have to really take a moment to show you how upside down and inside out this would have been to them. 
he takes a child. We don't know whose child it is. Maybe it's one of Peter's children because potentially they're staying in Peter's place. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He takes a little child, it says. And he stands him up in their midst and he takes the child in her arms. He says, whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me. Now, if you happen to be more familiar with Matthew's account of this, you probably default, because traditions are strong, to thinking what Jesus is teaching us here is that we need to have the faith of a child. But Mark's account doesn't speak about faith at all. Mark's account is about welcoming. Matthew's account deals with becoming like, having faith like, but that's not what Mark is doing. No, rather, as one commentator noted, in our Western culture, we tend to view children as innocent, vulnerable, pure. We want to protect them and care for them. In the first century culture, they were viewed as insignificant, having no social status. Welcoming a little child was to entirely break social norms, lowering oneself to accept another of lower status, and thereby risking one's position of power and prestige. Now again, this sounds really strange to us. We just don't live in this world. And if that's the case, you need to go hang out with my friend Ron, and you need to ask him to tell you stories about his 40-plus years in Japan. Because he has story after story of this exact thing. And when you hear his stories, they'll come alive. I'm going to take his thunder and, and tell one story uh, because it is so helpful. Yes, and I were over there, and he told us his story uh, serving as a pastor over in Japan, and they went on furlough. And so there was an older Japanese pastor who was watching his church for him. And Ron comes back and does what every Christian would do. Well, every Christian that knows our culture. He stands up before the church and says, thank you for serving this church so faithfully for this last year. You are so appreciated. And we would respond, oh, you're very welcome. No, this man responded by turning him into the executive committee, saying, a younger man thanked me in public. Understand, that's a total culture shift for us. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is showing these guys, it's not about prestige. Because what was their question? Who's the greatest? It's not about prestige. No, no, in this kingdom. It's about who do you welcome? Can you welcome and accept the least and the lowest? Are you willing to take that approach? Are you willing to take in even a child? And so much so that if you do that, and when you do that in my name, you actually are receiving the Father himself. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember what he says? As much as you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And as much as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. So friends, this is the call of discipleship, to serve, to serve others. And one of the things that the elders have been praying and thinking through is how do we at Bethany in the years ahead press into discipleship? How do we create a culture of discipleship here at this church? Uh, the passage is clear. It does not mean that we make a bunch of self-sufficient Christians. That's not what discipleship is. No, rather, it's as with the opening illustration, it's seeking to shape and polish living stones to fit together, interlocking together, resting on the cornerstone of Christ. And this is the main reason why we're going to be calling an associate pastor, uh, to help us focus on and execute the elders' vision for discipleship ministries here at Bethany. See, one part of that plan, as we've talked about, will be to, to create uh, community groups, home groups, places where, where we can get together and relationally grow. Uh, they're wonderful small groups where relationships can bloom. Uh, they're places where in life's challenges, you, you have these deeper relationships and connections where you can pray together and you have this group that just is there for you because you're doing life together more often. But they also serve as touch points for new members when someone shows up. Oh, one of the natural questions, where do you live? Oh, 
Did you know they have a community group over there? It's where we can connect you. You start to build relationships into the life of the church. But I've also seen many times community groups also function as wonderful places for singles during the holidays to be welcomed because that's family and they're brought in and cared for and loved. Uh, they're often places which seek to walk alongside people going through hard seasons in life where they're the first to know. Not the only, but the first. So for many, community groups will be a wonderful place to develop deeper relationships to grow. They're wonderful tools for, for connecting visitors and, and even for evangelism. We're Lord willing, in the summertime, we would consider working into our budget, community groups throwing barbecues and inviting their neighbors, getting to know people. Jesus said when people see Christians loving each other, it's one of the best ways to know that the Father has sent the Son. But that's just one thing that we hope to do. Uh, another thing we hope to do is, is discipleship means, as I said, learners, to be learners. And the elders have been praying through, what would it ha- look like to have a more focused and, and thought-through approach to Sunday school and training here? Uh, I, I've mentioned that I, we're, we're, we're praying through what it would look like to have a four- or five-year rotation of Sunday school classes, uh, to walk through the important essential elements of Christian life and doctrine. See, along to see people be able to understand the faith, but be able to share the faith. Uh, to, to have that answer for the hope that lies within us. Which means you have to be able to trace the storyline of the Bible and see how that arterial line feeds the rest of the Bible's story, how it bends around the cradle and the cross and the crown. We need to make sure that members of this church understand the character and attributes of God, the person and work of Christ. Not just to intellectually know it, but to do as Paul does every time he thinks about it, to bubble over in worship. After 11 chapters of deep theology, Paul doesn't stop and say, we need a break. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the glory of God. We need theology that does that, that leads you to worship. Uh, We need to see how we stand on the shoulders of so many who've come before us. Learn from the successes and the failures of Christians of the past. See, friends, these are all the things that we need. And so the way that elders are hoping to bring this about is, see, is I don't have time to do all that stuff. We have elders who are working and laboring and doing other things. So the associate pastor becomes the one who puts these plans and facilitates them and gets them going. But as I mentioned with Kevin Van Hooser, pastors are generalists. And so the beauty about hiring a generalist is when he completes one task, he seeks elsewhere. Where does this church need discipleship? And so once we get community groups and Sunday school more set, well, he moves on. He, he goes to support Sam and Lindsay and Corey and Sarah and the youth. He, he works with Beth and the children's ministry team. Say, how do we sharpen our curriculum? How do we make sure that this is doing everything it can to promote the gospel to our children? He works with outreach and missions. He's a generalist for you sports fans. He's a utility player. You put him where you have a need. See, friends, the mission of Bethany Baptist Church wasn't dreamed up. It was given by Jesus. It is make disciples, baptizing them as believers into membership, teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught. And that is a big calling. And it's a call that we need help with. We need more help to put into place structures and and to be able to go and move and shift and care for people to make sure that we're growing. So as I said earlier, I encourage you, if you have questions, ask PASCOM members or council uh, more about Jeff. We've had a a great time getting to know him. I'm very excited for you to get to meet him. I believe he's going to serve us well. Of course, at the end of the day, Jesus builds his church, but he uses many means. And one of those means is a church that has well-trained disciples that are flowing in hospitality. So visitors show up, and it's not just a hello, it's a come to lunch. It's, it's a welcome into our family. 
And so if Bethany Baptist is going to grow and thrive in the years ahead, we need to be more intentional and focused on approaching discipleship and hospitality here at this church. Well, as I've said, discipleship is a life of prayerful dependence upon Jesus while following his example of serving the lowly and fighting temptation as living sacrifices. Well, those last two points we will see in this last point of our sermon, accepting discipleship's call. Let's look at verse 38 through 50. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Uh, this is a challenging little section. Uh, first of all, I hope you're starting to see why this flows with the two previous passages. Because what did the first pericope, the first section we saw, do? Uh, Jesus comes down the mountain and the disciples had failed to cast out a demon. I think this is part of the clue. John says, well, these other guys were casting out demons, apparently successfully. <laughs> and he said, we stopped them. Don't worry, Jesus. The team's good. We, we got the team together. <laughs> we can't be letting other people show us up because we're, we're the insider guys, right? Do you see the connection? So that's what's going on. The other difficulty, though, is that our English translations tend to break this up, depending upon what translation you have. I have the NIV here. There's two different chapter headings. Well, in the earliest Greek manuscripts, this is actually John's question, and then 39 through 50 is one paragraph. It's one thought, which is tricky because it shifts gears a couple times. Now, grammatically, it's easy to follow. It's one thought as well. But the subjects shift, where we, we go from welcoming people to judgment to salt and mixing of metaphors. So let's, let's chew through this a bit and see if we can make sense of this. Well, John is, again, he's clearly demonstrating that uh, he does not understand this upside-down kingdom which Jesus has been sharing. He, he's still trying to keep the boys. You know, he's, he's keeping the insider group. These guys weren't part of our group, Jesus, so don't worry. We told them to be quiet. Uh, there's just more than a bit of hint of status here, uh, these insiders that you see from John. And maybe, just maybe, it's him holding up for the nine who failed to cast out the demon. Uh, maybe he's just trying to, to you know, win one for the team, as it were. Whether it's jealousy or whether it's veiled status issues, Jesus rebukes him and the rest of the disciples through him. No, you must not stop them. Jesus' response is not meant to be taken exhaustively. He doesn't say someone can do miracles in my name and then immediately say nothing bad about me. And you can go throughout church history and see example after example, sadly, of many who've done incredible works for the Lord only to apostatize and to leave the faith. As I like to say, God is able to draw straight lines with very crooked sticks, even to the point of those who abandon the faith entirely. So it's rather what Jesus is giving us is a kind of proverbial truth. 
is that those speaking in Jesus' name, those bearing fruit, are on Jesus' team, as it were, even though they might be very different. They might not be part of our same group. Jesus used very inclusive language. Whoever is not against us and whoever gives you a cup of water in my name will not lose their reward. This inclusive language is important. Notice what he's saying. Whoever belongs to the Messiah, they will not lose their reward. Which raises the question of, well, who belongs to the Messiah? Well, this is where the idea of theological triage becomes so important. What I mean by that is that while all doctrine is important, there are some doctrines which define the bounds of the Christian life. And then a second-tier doctrines define the borders of a local church. And then third-tier doctrines where people within a local church can agree to disagree. Galatians 1 shows us what that outer bound is supposed to look like. In that letter, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, and he says, I don't care if an angel from heaven shows up, tears the roof off your church building, and preaches a different gospel. That's an anathema. He's cursed. He's outside of the faith. So any doctrine which changes the message of the gospel, according to Galatians 1, is a gospel-defining doctrine. Hence, it's the first tier. If you change the, doc- the gospel, you're no longer in the faith. You're no longer in the church. Uh, many years ago, at the turn of the 20th century, when the liberal social gospel was coming in, there was a man named J. Grisham Machen, and he wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, it's a superb read, and Machen's argument basically goes like this. Look, you can believe in whatever you want. You can believe in the flying spaghetti monster. I don't care. But Christian, the word Christian has a historical meaning. So stop calling yourselves Christian if you're going to believe something that's completely anti the gospel. And I would say the same thing today, but nobody's going to listen to me, so people are going to still call themselves Christian, even though they don't believe anything that's remotely resembling the historic Christian faith. Well, that's what's going on here with tier one issues. But Jesus clearly is acknowledging there's a second area. There's an area where Christians can, can agree, right? They're those who belong to the Messiah, but they're not with us. And that's where we have second-tier doctrines. They define the bounds of the local church. Uh, Their second-tier does not mean they're unimportant. I'm so committed to a number of second-tier issues that I could never go to a church that doesn't have congregational doctrine and polity and, and doesn't observe the ordinances the way that I believe the Bible teaches. So for me, those are very important. I'm not going to budge on those. But it does mean that I have to recognize that there are many who disagree with me on those points. But they are Christians. That's what Jesus says. The many who belong to the Messiah will not lose their reward. So there's many churches I disagree with on these secondary issues, and they'll be rewarded. And they're preaching the same gospel, tier one, but they're preaching some different things down here that we disagree with. We see this in Paul in Philippians 1, where he, he says, oh, some of those guys, they preach the gospel for envy and selfish ambition. Their very internal desire is to preach for their own gain. And Paul's response, praise God, the real gospel's going forth. So at the risk of using a bad word, we need to be careful that we're not so overly rigid that we lose all sense of ecumenism. Uh, We have to acknowledge that there is a fine line that God's people are those who agree on the gospel. So this creates tension, though, because on the one hand, We dare not be more exclusive than Jesus. We must rejoice in the gospel work that others are doing in Jesus' name. They'll be rewarded for it. But on the other hand, the repeated warnings in the New Testament about false teachers show us that those who preach a different gospel are outside the camp. So, So we have to learn to be wise, to be gentle and discerning, 
I praise God for men whose churches I could never be a member of, for the Tim Kellers and Lee Duncans and Sinclair Ferguson, Michael Horton, and many, many others I could list. Oh, they are a blessing to the church. We agree on the gospel. Ah, we disagree on second-tier issues. I could never be a member of their church. They could never be a member here. But I praise God for them because they preach that salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, notice the logic of Jesus' argument. For those who preach a different gospel, who lead one of these little ones astray, and then it defines little ones, those who believe in me. He's not talking about the child anymore. He's talking about all believers. Anyone who leads one of those little ones astray, it'd be better for them to have, ah, the English is a heavy millstone. Quite literally, it's a donkey's millstone. A millstone so heavy, only a donkey could turn it. It'd be better to tie that as a necktie and throw him into a sea. Those are some strong words. That's how serious Jesus takes the first tier. He doesn't have that approach on the second tier, but on the first tier, he does. It's instant judgment. Uh, maybe not instant in this life, of course, but it's going to be a judgment, certainly. But then it changes again, and he speaks about anybody who stumbles one of these little ones, they're going to have an incredible judgment. But then he also has this other warning. Watch out for yourself, because guess what? You can stumble yourself. Did you see how it switches? It switches to looking inward. 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble... But then 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, any stumbling block needs to be dealt with seriously. It needs to be dealt with quickly. Now, this cannot be taken literally because mutilation was forbidden in the Old Covenant. So it's clearly not that. It, it, is, it is a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. Uh, some say it could be metonymous, meaning that the hand signifies all that is done, the foot signifies everywhere we go, and the eye signifies everything you see. It could be. Uh, the point, though, is this, that sin is to be dealt with radically. It is to be cut off root and branch. That we, we cannot play around with it. That's the point. And that's why he weaves in these three warnings about hell in the midst of these warnings against yourself in dealing with sin. Now, the doctrine of hell and judgment is a terrifying one. It is one that Christians should always be cautious with. We should never speak about it with a tone of smugness. We should always speak about this doctrine in a way that is accompanied with a pleading of turn to Christ. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. But because it's an uncomfortable doctrine, we cannot avoid it. But the Bible teaches it. And I would be willing to argue that maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and this is one of those doctrines that just really upsets you. But I'd be willing to argue that if we spend enough time talking, you would actually come to agree with me that judgment is necessary for life. Let me give you a, a, a somewhat silly example at first. I guarantee you that when you watch a movie or you read a book and there's a truly grotesque or evil antagonist, when they die, you feel no sorrow. You probably even celebrate I've never met somebody who wept when Prince Humperdinck and the Princess Bride is tied up and proved to be the coward he is, or to get more serious. I've never met somebody who would seriously say that Hitler and Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot, that death was good enough. Anybody who has any sense of right and wrong knows that is just not justice. So what that they died? Millions upon millions were killed by these men. We know that's not true justice. We know it inside. So you see, friends, again, if you're here today and maybe you're not a Christian and you 
worry and wrestle and toil or even hate this doctrine of hell and judgment. I would just say, friend, if you have any sense of justice whatsoever, you already know that justice is required. Uh, Otherwise, any claim to be someone who loves justice is self-deceived at best and maybe virtue signaling at worst. The real question which needs to be answered is this, by what standard? By what standard are people judged? That's the question, friend, that you need to ask. So again, if you're here today and you wrestle with these things, I would love to speak with you afterwards. I'll be standing out there. Well, Jesus has moved from this picture of inclusion, of radical inclusion, welcoming those who are not of us but who belong to the Messiah, to this stark warning of judgment. And now that judgment spoke of fire, but here it shifts and it mixes metaphors with salt. What is going on here? One more time, look at those last few verses, 49 and 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, this is one that is, again, because so uh, divorced from our context, we can miss it. But for a first century Jew, they knew that every single offering they offered was offered with salt. If Leviticus has not ended your read through the Bible plan in a year, you would have read Leviticus 2.13 which says, the covenant of salt. Remember, salt was a preservative. It it, it was essential for preserving the covenant, the sacrifice every morning, every evening, salted. So for the first hearers, to be salted with fire brings up sacrificial language. Uh, The sacrifices to restore peace with God, to restore fellowship with God. So do you see now how this ties back to John's original comment? John was saying, look, Jesus, we're the insiders and they're the outsiders. Then Jesus gives this illustration of inclusion and he circles back to judgment. And now he comes at the end and he says, be salty, be a preservative, be a goodwill offering seasoned for the Lord. In other words, this is the same exact language and and pictures that Paul was using in Romans 12.1. When he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the call. It's the call to be a living disciple, Uh, to to be one who who welcomes those who belong to the Messiah, who who fearfully avoids false teaching, who is ruthlessly digging out sin in your life, and who is giving your whole life over as a living sacrifice for God. Friends, that is discipleship. Discipleship is a prayerful life of dependence upon Jesus while following his example, serving the lowly, fighting temptation as living sacrifices. But that last little part of fighting temptation, living sacrifices, has probably been illustrated by no one better than John Owen in his classic, The Mortification of Sin, The Putting to Death of Sin. He opens the book by referring to Romans 8.13, which says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the argument there in that verse. If you put to death, then you will live. And what Owen does is he presses the logic of that conditional clause. If, so in other words, you cannot be a Christian and live unless you have put to death, are putting to death the deeds of the body. This is the same thing John says in 1 John. But he presses on this reality that we must be killing sin 
his famous line, be killing sin or sin will kill you. But then he immediately turns and says, but did you catch the means of how you do this mortification, this killing of sin, if by the Spirit? And he says, this is the same Spirit of God that dwells in us, that quickens us. It is the Spirit of adoption who makes intercession for us. And he clarifies, any attempt to kill sin apart from God, the Spirit is vain. He says, the disciples, like the disciples in this passage, they started to think they could accomplish God's work in their own strength. They had a failed attempt of casting out a demon, and they have this argument about who's the greatest, and they're trying to stop Jesus and his ministry of others who cling to him. Now they were looking inward to do these things in their own strength. Instead, as Owen says, by the Spirit, he says, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. That's Jesus' point here. Disciples who posture for positions have missed the point of discipleship. It's not about having our way or forcing our will or being empowered, but by being empowered by the Spirit to kill sin and serve others. And that is why Jesus came, to be delivered over by men. In the middle of this section, the thing that is completely missed by the disciples is the very empowering that they need. As Owen says, when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit who brings the cross of Christ into our heart by faith. And he gives us communion with Christ in his death and fellowship in his sufferings. This, friends, is the true ground and fuel for our discipleship. Our call to be living sacrifices flows from the one who was sacrificed for us. So brothers and sisters, these are the truths that must shape the life of this church. Our membership must flow from a desire to be living sacrifices, to be accepting and welcoming and laying our lives down for each other. Not personal ambition or opinions or little fights and bickerings, but God's glory. Peace, as he says, with one another. Be salty, be a preservative of peace. So friends, if we're going to exist and thrive as a church, we will do so only so far as we align our mission, our ministries, in the single-minded aim of fulfilling the great commission of making disciples. So may we, with the Holy Spirit's help, be a church that seeks His will. May we seek to bend our lives around seeing more and more disciples converted and trained for His glory and the good of His kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank you for the fact that you have not left us as orphans. We are those adopted by the Spirit. And we thank you for how you care for us and provide for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us in our own personal discipleship, that we would be those who are pressing in, who find your word to be truly life. And we pray for those who do not yet know you. Lord, would you bring many? And would you allow us to press in and grow the discipleship and the evangelistic ministries in this church so that you would be glorified in this place. For Jesus' sake, amen.